I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Okay, and welcome to episode 35 of the Market Maker podcast. It's Friday, the 17th September. I'm joined as ever by Piers Curran, Head of Trading at Amplify. And Piers, how are you feeling after the launch of Amplify Me on Wednesday and the big party that, that took place. Yeah, I mean, on Thursday, I was feeling both simultaneously really good and really bad. Uh, good, <laughs> like I was buzzing. What a great, what a great night just to get everyone together. It was just so amazing. The, and the kind of positivity you know, in the, in the group, we had like 250, you know, of our uh, summer analyst students um, joining us uh, for, a, for a kind of big end of summer party. And yeah, it's just good having been working with them on Zoom for, for, for months. It's like great to not only us to see them, but actually for them to see each other and um, just phenomenal. So yeah, feeling really good. But then, yeah, it was a long, it was a long night. I, I was, I'm not going to lie. I was feeling a little bit fragile on Thursday morning, uh, still recovering. <laughs> the, the, the funny thing that all of those guys wouldn't have seen was that afterward, um, you, me and Will kind of went off for a little, little extra one just before we departed. <laughs> yeah. And we went, somewhere else. we went somewhere else in Shoreditch. And there, there we are. So this was quite a formal event just to paint the scene for people listening. So we're in our generally in, in suits, shirts, and we go, we go to a, a bar where I'd say the average dress code was, was kind of what looked like David Beckham in 1996, perhaps with the floppy center parting and the, yeah, a few sarongs. Uh, and the, baggy, the baggy clothes. 
<laughs> and the funniest thing was is that uh, a group of guys in some quite let's call it urban get up come over <laughs> to us we obviously look like middle-aged suits they immediately ask us what should i be doing with my crypto wallet right now and <laughs> and the second guy as much as the first one was was joking the second guy was deadly serious yeah he was asking me about all these different coins and i was like um yeah i've got no idea <laughs> <laughs> although i think at the time i did give him some words of advice about um his his duration expectations but, right um, yeah it was yeah. quite funny wasn't it we they just we must look like such an eyesore he just thought yeah they're the guys for investment advice and then he genuinely asked for it on, on the curve on the street <laughs> i thought that was hilarious yeah um, it's, a, it's always a good or not good a, a, a sort of reality check in terms of um obviously we're all getting older um but god i mean i'm getting seriously older um so yeah when you're out in shoreditch about midnight uh it really hits home just how old i have become but <laughs> never mind but look with age comes wisdom and so with that being said let's go so a couple of things we want to talk about um from this week and there hasn't been i'd say one huge headline there definitely has been one if you're based in china <laughs> which has yeah. been uh, the Evergrande group, which we're going to talk about first. We're then going to talk about a couple of US data points, some meaningful ones, US CPI, and we're also going to talk about US retail sales. And then uh, there's this thing called quadruple witching, which if you're not actually familiar with markets, you're probably listening to this thinking, what did he just say? <laughs> uh, but so, so yeah, if that's you, don't worry, hang tight. We'll get around to that and we'll explain what, why the witches are out uh, on this particular time of the month. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the Apple event that happened midweek, the launch of the iPhone 13. Yes, that is a thing. It did actually happen. You didn't miss it. You didn't miss it, but we could have well have, uh, have just stayed in that evening. But uh, we'll talk about that. And then we'll also talk a little bit on the geopolitical front, some interesting news in regards to France, UK, Australia, and US we'll touch upon as well. So first things first, getting you up to speed and so we can get your your take peers chinese junk bond yields jumped to an 18 month high shares of real estate companies plunged evergrand had its credit rating downgraded requested a trading halt on its onshore bonds they're down their stock evergrand 90 90 percent from its 2020 high um so evergrand it's, they're scrambling to raise funds. They've got to pay a lot of people a lot of money um, to put that in perspective. Um, between lenders, suppliers, investors, and regulators are warning now there's 300, $305 billion US dollars of liabilities. And what this is creating then is this fear of what some people have talked about is China's Lehman Brothers moment because of this systemic risk associated with that so perhaps a bit of a what do they mean when they say that and why is this company so important in that way yeah so the, i mean the the first thing to say is the chinese housing market has been on people's radars as like a bubble risk let's just call it for years 
I mean, years. I, I don't know how many years because I can't remember. It's it's oh God. It's a conversation that always seems to crop up periodically. Um, I, like, it must be ten years or more now that people are starting to be going. Wow, check out. Hang on, that's not sustainable. Oh, that's a bubble, but it's just kept on going and it's kept on going and it's kept on going. Um, so when does this bubble come to an end? And obviously this this Evergrande thing is another episode in that saga, but possibly the the most serious and significant episode. And and will it, you know, what happens if they go bankrupt? Does the government bail them out? X, Y, Z. So I think this whole story that's been going for years maybe may coming to a head here now look, evergrand there's such it's, it's really kind of mind-boggling to kind of get your head around the size of this company um so they're the biggest um and, and they got a, yeah now they've got a they're they're kind of perhaps unwanted unwanted claim to fame is that they're actually the most indebted company in the world um but they have 1300 developments on the go at the moment, in over 280 Chinese cities. Um, and so obviously, well, so their model has always been from a cat, like running a business, cash flow is key, right? You need, you need liquidity, you need cash in the bank so that you can do simple stuff every month, like pay your salaries to your staff, for example, you know, pay your whatever office rent costs, pay your suppliers, right? And their model as a business has been sell properties off plan. So customers pay for the properties up front. And then with that cash, they're obviously then able to go ahead and build that property and able to run their company on a day-to-day basis. What's happened is that the uh, property sales have collapsed in recent months. And so that, that critical part of their cash flow cycle has just kind of disappeared and now they're struggling for cash and this is why it's all coming to a head so yes i mean there have been riots outside evergrande offices throughout the country which is literally unprecedented but yes it's investors that are angry yes it's suppliers who want to get paid for services delivered in terms of constructing these flats and for you know whatever and and then but the definitely the most important and when it comes to the systemic risk definitely the most important is that is the category of the people that have bought flats off plan up front they've paid for these things and now they're not going to get them because they haven't been built and you know in terms of uh that that word systemic it's like well if they, you you know you've heard of too big to fail Okay, and that really came post Lehman's when what happened as a result of Lehman Brothers failing, it was like, let's never allow that to happen again. If there's a piece of the jigsaw, if there's a piece of the economic system that's so important, if it fails, it'll bring the system down. Well, then we need policies to make sure that it doesn't fail. So this whole too big to fail thing is that kind of Lehman's legacy. And you saying that the um, Chinese state media said last night, addressing what you've said, Evergrande should not bet on a government bailout. Right. <laughs> so the, all, the, the, the stakes are so high here. Um, I mean, just a few more stats. They've got, so on the debt side, 
as you were saying, it's just north of 300 billion in terms of liabilities. About 89 billion dollars of that is actual debt, and then you've got other liabilities. But they've got relationships in terms of all these credit lines. They've got loans with 128 different banks. They've got loans with 120 non-banks. So, yeah, that's like 250 financial institutions that have exposure to Evergrande. So, so not only is this a systemic risk because of the fact that China's economy is so dependent on real estate. So it's thought that straight out, like the construction industry is about 10% of China's GDP, right? That, that's residential construction industry. 10% of China's GDP, when you add on all the suppliers and all the rest of it, they reckon it's about 30%, very roughly. 30% of the of GDP is based on that one sector, right? So that's clearly an economic systemic risk. But then if you think about consumers, well, everyone's wealth. If you own a property, that's your, you've got all of the majority of your wealth is tied up in that asset. And now if the housing market collapses as a result of this event. Well, then that's people's wealths. You know, their wealth is just kind of, you know, dramatically getting a haircut. Um, so, and then you've got the financial institutions that are also exposed. And, and if they're overexposed, then they're, those financial institutions' ability to lend and provide credit just to their customer base outside of the property sector, you know, then gets hampered. Uh, and this is why there is a potential kind of snowball pathway here that could see Evergrande failing and that leading to a economic crash. Is this not uh, in some way very, very expensive that the Chinese state just take control of the whole shebang? And it's like, okay, so we're moving in that direction anyway in lots of other areas at the moment, this whole regulatory crackdown. Now we assume control, government ownership of this. We control the whole thing. Right. And we've been talking about the government's sort of strategy to potentially renationalize everything. Hmm. We've been talking about that in recent podcasts with what they've been doing on the, on the tech side, what they've been doing on the education side. And, and sure, I mean, what I would say that one of their new, the kind of new government mantra is common prosperity. These are two words that they kind of use. And what I would expect, so yes, they've come out and said, Evergrande, don't bank on a bailout here. So what I would, if I was a betting man, I would expect that the government would essentially allow all the bondholders and the shareholders and the investors to, to wear this one and take the hit. You know, essentially let Evergrande go bankrupt which then the investors will lose their money and the bondholders will lose their money or most of it. And fine, they're, they're, not the, they're not the commoners, right? They're investors and they're financial institutions backing these bubbles. And so they're happy for them to take the hit. But in the end, they can't allow that snowball to go any further for those reasons that I was saying. So they'll probably have to then nationalise it and then fund it to make sure that those properties that have been bought actually get built until then hopefully in a way try and just arrest the crash in terms of property prices as well but the government have been trying to 
they've been trying to calm down this property market for years themselves. And it, it just hasn't, they were getting somewhere like they were, they were doing, um, they had their three red lines that they called it. This is like over the last four years. So they like, they had this um, sort of balance sheet and liquidity ratio thing. They then limited the ability of companies to add new debt. Uh, and then they began rationing the amount of credit banks could make available to property developers. They, the government have known about this property issue for years and years. They've had policies for four years to try and turn the ship. But COVID came out of nowhere and it just kind of, it just killed it. And, and now all of a sudden, yeah, you're Evergrande are right on the brink. Yeah, and, and it's you know ever present as well in China on the COVID side. So one of the things was because of the ability of the wave which the Chinese government responded to lockdown and how strict they were of enforcing that, actually natural immunity rates are very low, but they've actually got obviously a very huge population. So that's obviously adding to the complications now while you're getting these quite large flare-ups in, in COVID cases, which obviously amplifies the situation for them at this point in time. I was just having a look and there's probably a few things that would be good for if you're a student to understand from the what happened in the financial crisis, at least in the US and the Western world, was the systemically important financial institutions. That is actually a word and it's, it's called a SIFI. Do you remember SIFIs? <laughs> yeah. Um, back back uh, in the day. So, it's a, so what happened was in order to uh, identify these banks that are connected in multiple different ways to different types of sectors, geographic areas. I remember seeing one bank, you'll remember, it traded below six euros. And we were all talking about, okay, yeah, quite fancy, quite fancy, <laughs> a fairly sizable averaging in position here as it was going sub 10 euros. You remember what company that was at the time? Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank. Yeah, summer of 2019. You remember it got below six euros. Yep. You know what it's trading today? I actually don't. I haven't looked for ages. Go on. Is it above? Is it 15? Maybe just over 11. Okay. At the moment. So it's off its best. But yeah, it's been over yeah. 12 recently. So yeah, but the point being at the time, I remember seeing one of these graph infographics and it had Deutsche in the center. And it's literally Deutsche Bank cannot fail. <laughs> Yeah. And it was one of these firms at the time that was just bad press after bad press and everyone was kind of bailing. They're doing fire sale of assets. And, but at yeah. the point which, which it's just too big a monster now that what was quite interesting at the time, and I think actually played into a lot of the deterioration of Angela Merkel's control through the period, obviously immigration has been a, a critical one, probably the main thing. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, it was also obviously hugely unpopular because the way of which these bailouts were constructed in a eurozone is that the contributions determined on the economy and Germany was stumping up a lot of cash bailing out these southern European nations at the time, which German people weren't happy about. Um, and then what was coming at the time was, are we going to have to now bail out a bank that's paid multiple tens of billions of euros in fines for all of the things that they've perhaps shouldn't be or weren't exactly according to the rule of law <laughs> with subprime and things of that nature. So yeah, just super interesting. And, and this, so, yeah. It's hard to, like you're talking about, like remember when Deutsche went below six and you know, now it's doubled and you're like, you know, what a trade, you know, what a great trade that would have been. But 
trying to f- catch the bottom of one of these kind of major sell-offs is super difficult. I mean, obviously, the hindsight is easy to see where the bottom is, but I remember one really good example. Um, quarter one, 2009, when City, so this is post Lehman's collapse. So Lehman's collapsed end of September, final weekend in September, 2008. And then quarter four, 2008 was obviously an absolute car crash um, in terms of share prices, particularly the banks. So Citigroup was coming off and it was coming off and it was coming off. And we went into quarter one, 2009, it kept selling off and selling off. And it, I remember it went below $20. It was trading at $600 in, at its peak in 2007. Okay, And it got below $20. And no one was going, what? How, what? How could it, how could it be? worth less than $20. This is going to be a great buy because it, it can't, they, they can't go bust and it can't go lower than this, surely. Then it went below 15. Then it went below 10. Then it went below five. Then it went below $1. So people were going, wow, this is an outrageous bargain at 20 bucks. It then traded down below one. So I mean, now it's recovered, right? And yeah, great. What a great trade that could have been. But you could have just lost literally all your money trying to find where that bottom is. 70 bucks City shares trade today. Okay, not not bad. If you'd have picked that up for sub one, um, if... the, The problem I find, though, just now I'm slightly cringing because I just had a look at... Ether's performance year to date. And you want to know what the percent is on Ether year to date? What do you reckon? Uh, that just a complete guess. Obviously, it's something outrageous. I'm going to go 2,150%. Wow. I don't know what crypto you've been buying, but I want some of that. <laughs> Come on, what is it? 368% uh, year to date. So yeah, not quite, not quite up to your expectations, obviously, <laughs> but but nonetheless, uh, a nearly four hundred percent performance over nine months is not a not a bad thing at Decent. all. Um, all right, well look, let's pivot and let's look a little bit elsewhere because there's been a couple of interesting data points, in fact, coming out of the U.S. this week, and what we saw was U.S. CPI rose by less than forecast. This was being kind of uh, put up as one of the market events we're coming into the the fed meeting next week they're still on the fence when are they going to taper inflation the labor market are key we've had some labor market difficulties so what's the deal with inflation we were talking last week about is it perhaps a little bit more sticky well again this cpi reading came out less than forecast 0.3 percent from july restrained by declines in used cars airfares auto insurance. In fact, used cars prices declined 1.5% month on month. That's the biggest drop since November of 2016. And the monthly pace fell to just 0.1%, which is the smallest increase in US inflation on a monthly perspective since February. So victory for team transitory or a little bit early to be getting the victory flags out just yet? Early, I mean, 0.3% month on month to get that in perspective is back to the lowest of the year. So, last time we saw a monthly gain of that was that small was January. So, from January, we kind of trended up at the peak June 
it was plus 0.9% month on month. And then it's kind of pegged back to 0.5 in July, then 0.3 in August. Okay, so we, we've kind of, you've got that kind of bell-shaped curve going on on this inflation chart when you're looking out over the last, over 2021. Um, it's, it's, you know, the trend is there. So this is the second month in a row now of decent pullback. So you're starting to say that could potentially be a trend. You can't really rely on one piece of data. Two, though, all right, that starts looking a bit more interesting. What I'm, what no one's talking about yet, and maybe they're not talking about it because it's a stupid idea, but what happens if inflation actually goes negative here? I mean, if the price surges that we had earlier in the year are now going to reverse well then aren't we going to have an equally but opposite kind of pullback in inflation and what perhaps no one's thinking about is what happens if now inflation dies negative as some of these car used car prices you know start to rain back in um so it might be that i think we've been through about a month worth of Oh God, is inflation actually transitory? Maybe it's not. Oh my God, it might stay higher. Oh God, COVID actually is having an impact on the economy. We're starting to see growth rates decelerate. And I think we went through a month of just a little bit of summer blues in terms of our sentiment and outlook. And I think this figure, that inflation figure, definitely it's like, okay, you know, maybe we were a little bit pessimistic. Maybe we were in a bit pessimistic for a few weeks. And that's that's a glimmer. That, that perhaps our transitory idea may well still come through, but we'll see. Okay, and then the other figure that, that came out, which drew quite a bit of attention, was retail sales report for August came in much stronger than expected. So the month to month was at plus 0.7. Expectations were for minus 0.8%. So there's a considerable beat uh, boosted by what analysts termed as back to school shopping as well as child tax credit payments from the government. So given things like back to school shopping, I mean, should, should we not read too much into things like this with a one-time retail sales beat like that? I think you can't read too much into it. And, and that back to school shopping thing is normal. It's a seasonal effect. However, I've got two kids at school and I know that this year, the stuff we had to buy to go back to school was like way more than normal because they haven't been at school for so long, right? Because of all the lockdowns and schools shutting, you didn't need to buy them, you know, a pair of trainers or a new bag or a pencil case or all these things, right. That go into getting your kid back to school properly. And so actually everything they had was, was so very old, and so you're having to buy a lot more stuff than normal, I'd say. So actually, this year's back-to-school spend, I would say, is above, well above average, which feeds into that kind of retail sales figure that we got. And therefore, you shouldn't be too, don't don't start getting bullish because of that one retail sales print. Well, it's like uh, Piers Curran reporting from from the ground, from the from the playground. <laughs> <laughs> So what does all this mean then? I guess the main thing to take away here is where are we at with this tapering timeline? And there was a survey that the FT put out, I think this morning actually, where they 
they, they do this regularly. They'll speak to economists or the big banks. They'll get the general vibe of which is that no taper announcement is expected at the Fed's upcoming policy meeting, which is happening next week. And actually, most of the economists polled are preparing for a move at the bank's November gathering. How do you feel about those dates? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, said before. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that, that if you if you try and rewind back a couple of months, then we were thinking, right, they're gonna they're gonna announce in September, but they'll announce that it's kind of a year end. They'll start tapering in year end, but they'll probably lay out the schedule and the timelines in their September meeting. So we're in we're coming to this meeting now. It's next week, and it looks like there's been enough of a kind of negative or enough of a deceleration that payrolls, you know, that labor report last time round wasn't good. And so I think there's enough there for them to just hold off till November. And I think that's probably right. But in the end, I don't think it changes much in that they're going to taper, probably going to start year end or start next year. And that tapering will happen throughout 2022. So I, I don't think that really has changed. So yeah. I guess the hawkish surprise for next week would be that Powell does start talking about the tapering schedule. And from a, a market's perspective, I mean, we're, we're recording this coming up to 4 p.m. London time on Friday, but I'm just looking at my charts now. U.S. stocks are coming off across the board. Yields and the dollar are rallying fairly aggressively, and gold got hammered yesterday. So it yeah. certainly feels like from an asset class reaction that um, you know, people, are, people are, well, this is the thing, the CPI report, unless you are right, and we are going to get this very spectacular slowdown in demand, then the tapering is not really a, uh, a, an option. It's going to happen. And markets yeah. definitely at the moment are uh, finishing off the week or reflecting that. But one thing that markets are also probably for the equity space today, it's quadruple witching. And I thought it's probably worth just mentioning what that is, um, if you're unsure. And it refers to the date when derivatives, so there's four things. There's four things. And number one is stock index futures, stock index options, stock options, and single stock futures expiry. So can you repeat that to me three times as fast as you can? <laughs> <laughs> and basically what happens then is um, with these derivatives, they expire. And so quadruple witching occurs once every quarter. And it's always the same. It's the third Friday of the quarter, March, June, Sep, Deck. And what you tend to see then is quite heavy trading volumes. Some people sometimes associate it with some volatility or at the point of expiration as people are rolling over positions, so on and so forth. But it tends to add to a little bit of the short-term price action, very much like an intraday type thing. Um, but anything on that to add? Or I know you had a piece about equities in general and actually not talking US for a change. Yeah. Talking about mighty Europe. Well, yeah, just on this quadruple quadruple witching yeah so once a quarter third friday of the final month of the quarter um so yeah you get all these derivative contracts reaching expiry which just forces people to trade uh 
so volumes typically increase on this quadruple witching day. That's in the cash underlying market. Um, and it just leads to I, what the way I, best way I'd describe it is it leads to a, an increase in the amplitude of the intraday noise. So like that price action, we call it, which is like just second to second, how quickly is the market moving? And, and it just tends to lead to that noise being increased and, and the amplitude of it increasing. Does it lead to the market selling off more or going up more? Not really. I don't think, yes, the market's selling off right now. We're trading right down on our lows, testing the low from yesterday on the NASDAQ, actually, and the low pretty much coming towards the low of the week. But I don't think it's not because it's quadruple witching that the market is selling off. The market's selling off because of the reasons perhaps we're, we're, we're talking about, but um, it just increases that noise. It just makes it harder to trade. It's just a bit more risky. Uh, the vol- short-term volatility's um, increased. But, but yeah, I mean, US stocks, I'm just looking at the NASDAQ chart. What will be interesting, it's the 17th of September. We're just coming down to test. Well, well it's not only the low of the week, actually, but it's also the low of the month, um, which was set on Wednesday. Um, and this so far, um, well, we'll see. We set an all-time high on the 7th of September. Um, and then we've been kind of selling off quite consistently ever since. Um and I'd say from a kind of technical point of view, 15, you know, getting back to 15,000 on the NASDAQ is possible. Um, but yeah, it was interesting because last week we were talking about how US banks were getting bearish, revising down their growth forecasts for quarter four. And you know that was feeding into that quite depressed sort of sentiment. But actually, one other bank came out this week with a slightly different angle, which I thought was quite interesting. And that was Morgan Stanley. And they're actually not talking about the US for once, but actually talking about Europe. And Morgan Stanley's view is actually Europe's looking pretty tasty from uh, an investor's perspective, looking at positioning going into year end. Uh, so, And that's what September traditionally is for. It's that month where, you know, the summer's done, that summer lull in volume is over and you get that pickup. And what happens in September is you're getting big kind of fund managers just thinking positioning for year end. And that's why you start, you get a lot of volatility typically in September. It's one of the most volatile parts of the month uh, of the year. And they're positioning for year end. And what Morgan Stanley have got, which I thought was pretty interesting, is that um, but, well, Europe's lagging, let's say the US, with regards to its COVID recovery. Okay, so therefore in terms of... Um, COVID rebound growth acceleration, you could certainly say maybe the US has been through that already. And actually, we're worried about deceleration of that now. Whereas you might well find that Europe hasn't quite yet been through its full uh, growth uh, rebound acceleration. So that's one thing. You've got perhaps upside surprise, and almost certainly the EU will be a GDP outperformer going into the end of this year and into 2022. Um, then you've got the arguments we were talking about more broadly, which is maybe that summer depressed sentiment is done now. And perhaps COVID Delta spikes, we've hit the top and now it's going to improve. So you kind of got that tactical rally into year end back on the cards. But in terms of Europe specifically, from a valuations point of view, um, currently right now, valuations are a record low compared to US 
valuations. So I'm talking about share, uh, company valuations here. There's never been a wider divergence. So that's one thing that looks interesting. Then looking just within Europe and looking at um, things like stock market yield versus bond market yield. So currently on the stock 600, you've got an average dividend yield of 3%. So when you're thinking about a fund manager and I want to position myself into year end, I can get a 3% yield if I invest in stocks compared to the yield I might get if I'm investing in things like German bunds, so the German 10-year bond market, that yields minus 2%. So you've actually got a 5% divergence there, plus three on stocks, minus two on bonds. So straight away, stocks look really attractive when you're thinking about that multi-asset um, allocation. And then finally, um, profit growth forecasts for 2022 for European companies are super low. At the moment, 2022 profit growth for European companies is sat at 7%. Now, if you go back over the last 30 years, in September, for every one of those 30 years, in September, the growth forecast for the next year has never, ever been this low. It's like the most pessimistic September ever. So these factors, Morgan Stanley are pointing towards their strategy of definitely shifting and backing more Europe. So from a geographical play, they're switching up and actually getting quite tactically long Europe because they, they see more upside potential in European shares going into year end. And they're talking about like energy and uh, finance sectors and things like this. So, yeah, I thought it was quite an interesting spin and one that's positive for once there are there is positive news out there if you want to go and find it and it is funny how the media works because things like the covid situation in the us which we were talking about a lot was getting a lot of media attention no headlines now and the reason why because it's improving such <laughs> as the media's interest to feed the negative narrative because us human beings love no dwelling on bad news but I was, as you were explaining europe i just wanted to have a check and i've got the stats up now in front of me i was looking at the share of people by percentage who've received at least one dose of covid19 vaccine and you remember portugal was quite a hard hit spot originally you know what their vaccine first their one dose at least administered is now percentage of population entire country um i'm gonna go 70%. Okay, so I, was, I was going to give you a reference point. The UK is at around what you've just said, 71%. Yeah. For Portugal, 87 Oh, wow. Portugal, 87 So it's almost is that for quarters. adults or the whole um, nation? So this is total population. Wow, that's got to be, it's got to be the highest, doesn't it? The only Globally. country higher, the only country higher is the one that's been the outlier throughout is UAE. Right. The yeah. UAE are up at 90% odd. Do you know right. who's number three on the podium at the moment? Israel. Spain. Oh, okay. It's interesting. Who else is up there now above the UK? France. Right. Italy. Is that right? Okay. I did all, not know that. Higher vaccination, at least one administered dose, higher than the UK at 71. You know where the US is? 62. 62nd on the list. Uh, there's 62%. Oh, 62%. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So your average of those big, you know, Italy, France, Spain, so on, you know, you're looking at high 70s. 
That's quietly swung around, hasn't it? Obviously, back at the start of the year, the UK were miles in front. And now, actually, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, that feeds even more into that Morgan Stanley kind of I've got one more for you. Go on. To make you feel even more bullish. (laughs) To do with vaccines. Because of how quick the UK were to administer the first round of vaccines, they are now seeing a quicker drop-off Mm. in the efficacy rates requiring now why the strategy is to do boosters booster the same drug which they've started rolling out this week yeah to the old and vulnerable europe are now benefiting right from not only <laughs> the idea now on the supply side there isn't so constrained as we were several months ago when it was a real problem globally still is to a certain degree but we're not quite there but their efficacy rates generally, because they got administered later, are still higher. It's like the it's like the hare and the tortoise. <laughs> right? The tortoise wins. Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. A couple of other things then, just to wrap up. One was Apple. Um, and actually, I just wanted to quickly see where Apple shares are trading on the week, because when I last looked on the week performance. They're the big underperformer as far as big tech are concerned. They're down about 3.5% for the week. And they fell midweek on their California streaming was what their product announcement event was called. And they unveiled their new iPhone 13. Slightly tweaked camera, slightly faster chip, screen the usual. upgrade. Ugh, the usual. I still can't leave the ecosystem. I'm still stuck in the iOS, but it's like I'm stuck in the matrix. I can't get out of the Apple product mix now. I tried Samsung. I lasted 48 hours, I'm afraid to say, and then I had to go back. But first things first, when was the last time, this is for you, that you were excited about an iPhone release and you were like, wow, yeah, I've got, I have to, I have to get that upgrade for that one. Can you remember? 2008 I don't know yeah it's like the original <laughs> 2007 was the original actually iPhone 1 it was just called iPhone um 2007 yeah I know what you mean it's been but the but the okay so to counter that whilst it's oh god all right the same old little upgrades fine usual it's such a machine apple in terms of annual you know, new kind of upgrades and new handsets. But what's, what's to counter your kind of pessimism about it, and I know the share price is, has been under pressure and, and, and actually we're kind of trading back at levels we were seeing earlier in the summer with Apple. But um, to kind of counter your pessimism, one thing that analysts are saying is that, um, so uh, iPhone 13 is to account for nearly 40% of the 230 million units uh, produced this year. So that's a 15.6% rise on 2020's total numbers. But one of the interesting things is most, most, Apple, most iPhone sales are to people who've already got an iPhone. And right now, apparently, there's 1 billion iPhone users out there. Um, and right now, 250 million of them have got a handset that's over three years old, which yeah. apparently is, that's like the highest it's ever been. So, so the idea is that people that might not have gone for iPhone 12 or iPhone 11, maybe their time, they're going to go. Yeah, and so 13 the is a lucky there, number. Yeah, the rationale there is that as the ASP 
which is what the analysts refer to as the average selling price has gone up. They breached through the iPhone 10 timings. Remember they had the, the X and it was like the new model at the time or new technology behind the same skin, at least. Um, the cost of that device went above a thousand bucks, if you remember. And there was a big yeah. thing at the time and it was like, wow, super yeah. expensive. And they've kind of hit a bit of a threshold there with the consumer kind of barrier of how far they can go. But to counteract that, what the mobile carriers started doing in the 10 was signing people up to three-year mobile contracts. Obviously, right. this is three years ago. Right. Okay. Interesting. And so yeah. to spread your payment, right, they just added an extra 12 months on it. Locked so you in for a bit wants, longer. And remember all the drama around the 10. It's like, well, it's the 10, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, everyone yeah. had to have the 10. So everyone just went, Do you know what? I'll just sign up for three years. And hence the reason why they're going to get a kicker now. So they don't yeah. need to bring out the big guns with the innovative change. Save that. Let people consume this, you know, carbon copy paste. Oh, I, I can do cinema portrait films. Okay, fantastic. I can do 8K HD. Yeah, my, my TV can't even handle that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, it's a smart move. And so they know what they're doing. They're, oh, yeah, absolutely. They've been doing this a while. Yeah. And the other interesting spin on the back of this was the um, expansion of their Fitness Plus service. I mean, I can't say I've ever come across it um, at all, but I did see that Peloton, um, which does seem to be a very choppy stock, Peloton got hit by more than 3% on the actual um, Apple event in itself on the day on just the competition starting to heat up a little bit in that fitness space. Yeah, Peloton have been having a nightmare, haven't they? But uh, I reckon you're uh, a Peloton customer. Come well, on, Well, I'm not. But now they've cut their prices by like £400. Mm. Uh, I, I have to say I'm now potentially interested. <laughs> so there, there is a category of um, people out there who are in my boat who didn't quite pull the trigger on a Peloton in lockdown because it's like, is it really that much? Um, and I couldn't, I would just went for a run instead. Um, but now I'm like, especially as winter's approaching, you see, I think this is quite key for something like a Peloton. There's a lot of fair weather exercises out there. I don't have a gym membership. So I, I exercise by going for actually going for a run outside, believe it or not. Um, so when obviously the weather turns, I'm like, yeah, do I really want to go for a run this morning? Not really. But You're like, I'm so, going to go and cycle with my buddies in LA. <laughs> <laughs> so I might buy a Peloton for the winter. Okay. There you go. Right. Well, stay tuned to the Amplify Instagram account. But, um, <laughs> but what, what, one of the things I, I wanted to say was, well, Piers and I have talked about this before, so I'm not going to dwell on the point of buy the rumor, sell the fact. But it happened again. Like it always does, you, the share price, Apple gets bid into the announcement and then it declines. And the reason our rationale behind this is that bigger stocks, those who are, have a higher traded volume, like Apple's a very popular name, very large company, but in the retail space, incredibly popular, they tend to they have much greater coverage. And so it's much easier to get information about these, these types of companies. And so I was having a look this morning because... Um, those who follow my kind of daily note, I put one out and I was talking about, here's what Apple are going to say. And it's not like, 
I'm guessing. It's like, no, this is what they're going to say. Yeah. Um, word for word. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I can literally send you the, the schematics of the new bezel on the new Series 7 <laughs> watch. Like, it's that transparent, right? Yeah. Literally. And the reason for that is there's loads of these blog sites in the US. And the reason I know is I used to track them all in my old job because it's my job to know all this sort of stuff in advance of time, hopefully. And so, yeah, things like um, if you ever wanted to check it out and really be like, what's Apple working on? And these, these guys like follow the patent filings, things like that, right. yeah. stuff that an Apple like is filing stuff every day for every type of conceivable idea. So they've got it locked in. It's really interesting, actually. And so nine to five Mac, Apple Insider, Mac Rumors, TechCrunch, Macworld, I, iMore is another one. In fact, I had a look. There's 90 of these websites. And you, you literally, I mean, some of them are people coming out. So when there's a real hot product, they get leaks, whether from I, the company, yeah, I believe from the company. Obviously. But you'll get these leaks in Silicon Valley of like, oh, I've just there, there's been this phone and we've got some photos of it and stuff like that. But yeah, just interesting how the, the news cycle works with these types of uh, well-covered companies in that, in that respect. Um, all right. Well, look, final one, just to wrap up then. Um, I'm going to ask you for who do you think said the quote? I've been stabbed in the back. That's a really bad accent, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's not Shakespeare, given that accent. Um, well, I know, I know the answer. Everyone knows the answers to that. That they're not happy. The uh, our our friends over the channel. Um, so, well, it's the French, but actually, God, actually, now who the precise person? What was it? The foreign minister, French foreign minister, was it? Was the French foreign minister? Yes. Yeah. They're not happy. And all right, they're using the pretense that they're not happy because, well, hang on a minute. The US, the UK and Australia have come together on a kind of pact around um, security in the, in, the, in the kind of Pacific Rim. Um, and the French are going, well, hang on, why aren't we involved in this? You know, we're allies. We should be in this pact as well. But I mean, that's just on the surface. Basically, they've lost a massive submarine contract uh was it 90 billion is that right 90 billion us dollars yeah yeah so they had the contract france had the contract to build australia some subs and with this new pacific impact the us have basically just slapped around the back and and, and won the contracts as how france are wearing a 90 billion slap in the face and um biden's pretty smug about it and it's uh, it's just uh, well it's, it's if you're not France it's it's funny because they've just lost out on a massive deal and it's the, and the money talks and of course they're trying to not directly say it's the money and they're trying to say it's more on the political level we're not happy to be involved but of course of course it's the money hmm. and what's interesting then is that um, it was only last week I think we were talking about Biden and G having a really cordial conversation for the first time in seven months you know how's it going buddy yeah it's all good we should have a face-to-face -face meeting of which it emerged before this news came out um that xi turned biden down for a face-to-face -face. and now this has happened 
yeah. um, which has come after that. And China has, has, has hit out at Australia, the UK and the US for playing geopolitical games, they call it. But I think actually the, the loser here is Australia because Australia is a highly dependent trade partner with China and China yeah. have not been shy in the last two years of saying, do you know what? Things like coal, for example, and you know, China, of course, like nearly every commodity in our world, they consume the most. And that's a key strategic one that Australia sells to China. China are like, I don't want it. And yeah. whenever that happens, that has a really immediate impact then on the prospects for the Australian economy. And we've seen this before in the Australian dollar play out as a proxy for this tension. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to see if Australia can weather the storm because there's a consequence to picking sides. Um, I think it's a very good point. I mean, absolutely, Australia are the big vulnerable ones in this 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 new trio. Um, they're yeah, it's hugely, and it's not just coal. I mean, obviously, a huge part of the Australian economy is is mining raw materials and metals, and um, of which China buy them all pretty much. So yeah, I think you're right. I'm not quite sure what the kind of the kind of cost benefit analysis. I don't know who did it from Australia's side, but they, they might well have uh, made a bit of a mistake there. Yeah, just just as a point of note, top exports of Australia as a, as a country, iron ore is number yeah. one, coal, petroleum, gas, because I know they have a lot of uh, connection with uh, Korea on that side, and then gold. All right, well, that wraps it up for, for this week. Uh, again, for the summer analysts, if you're still listening and you've made it to the end, well done. <laughs> you can rest this weekend. Just a huge effort for those as well that came from abroad just to be there for the day. Uh, some really amazing things that were said to me personally, and I'm really thankful for that. And you know, having to have an impact on you guys is just just such a an amazing opportunity for us as, as people and as a company and and the door is always open forever um yeah. so yeah um and don't forget to leave us a review and, and a rating on our <laughs> apple podcast <laughs> on that being said um just so yeah thank you very much and um yeah we'll see you next week thanks pierce enjoy the weekend thanks Ant. see you later sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.